Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we answer the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. And I'm LeVon Brown. And it's It's time time to to get get uncomfortable. We've all seen the picture. A sweet little child with black shoes, white socks, wearing a dress and a sweater with a ribbon in her hair as she walked down the steps from her schoolhouse. It's something children have been doing for years. But on November 14, 1960, this little child was escorted by four U.S. Marshals. She wasn't the only black child to integrate an elementary school that day in New Orleans, but she was the only one at William Franz Elementary. Of course, we're talking about Ruby Bridges. Welcome, Ruby. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're so great, grateful you'd be, uh, be willing to do this, particularly with uh, hurricanes and stuff barreling down all, all over the place in the Gulf. I know, but we survived, and at least I have power, so I'm all good. That's what happens here. Whenever it goes out, I mean, you know, usually it's pretty widespread, so, you know, it's not going to be restored uh, overnight. You know, by the time they get around to everybody, it's, it's usually about a week. Yeah. Well, at least you're not getting the floods this time, right? Absolutely. I will do without power any day. Yeah. Then, you know, rather than deal with the floodwaters. Yeah. yeah. Then, you get those, then you get those alligators, right? Oh, my. You know, that old saying, what? Lions, tigers, and bears, oh, my. Lions, tigers, and bears, <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. going to add alligators, alligators, and snakes to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell you what I learned, though. If it's cold, alligators can't bite. Oh, please. No, no. They actually hibernate. I was trying to figure out why they live so long. So we, we were there once uh, with my daughter's school, and we met this guy who they raised alligators, you can, you can imagine. And he was actually throwing um, candy anyway off the side of the boat to the alligators, and they can't bite until they warm up. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I well, still, well, I still don't like them, but I guess whenever I'm around them, I have to keep myself iced down. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay, so let's get started, guys. Yeah. Now, now, Ruby, you you are originally actually from Mississippi. Yes, I was born in a little tiny town called Tyler Town, Mississippi. Um, which is about an hour and 45 minutes from New Orleans. I'm not from Mississippi, but LaVon, you are from Mississippi. I've never heard of Tylertown, but it must be on the coast. Tylertown is, well, this is another little small town. It's Macomb. You Macomb, know. you know where Macomb is? Yeah. So it's right above Macomb. Okay. Uh, headed up north toward Jackson. Okay, all right. I've never been there. Yeah, only one red light. (laughs) That's more than enough. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) But now now you're in the big city of New Orleans, so. Yes, I always say that, um, you know, before the virus, I was on the road constantly for the last 25 years. 
And um, usually I say, you know, my things are here in New Orleans, but I'm everywhere else in, in, in the United States. But, you know, I was praying that I would figure out a way to get off the road because travel was not what people thought that it would be. You know, it's not nearly as glamorous as people think. And so, um, you know, I was really ready to kind of slow down and not be on the road as much. And so little did I know that this is the way, you know, my prayers were going to be answered. So, yes. Well, you know. why were you on the road? What, what well, um, what I decided to do many, many years ago, my first book was published in 1994. Okay. And that's when I did my first book tour and that kept me on the road for 25 years. So okay, gotcha. uh, the majority of my time I spent in schools across the country okay. uh, talking to kids. So. And then lately, I found myself also traveling abroad doing, you know, the same kind of work. So, okay. unfortunately, um, you know, this work is needed even more today than it was in the 50s and the 60s, as we yeah. all well know. Yeah, yeah well, it let's, is. Let's roll back to the 50s and 60s for a moment here. Um, back to that day when you went to school. Um, and I know you've shared this story a million times, but two million. <laughs> <laughs> can you could you could you share just one more time a little bit of that story of of going to school? No, no, you would actually had to take a test beforehand. Right. Well, you know, as you well know, Brown versus the board had happened in 1954, and that was the year that I was born. And what most people complained about, you know, about Brown versus the board is that it didn't have enough bite in, in it. You know, when they said that we needed to do this with all deliberate speed, that actually was a loophole for lots of people. You know, all deliberate speed for me probably is a little bit slower than it is for you right now. And I think that's what they were banking on, that that meant they could do it whenever they got around to doing it, meaning, meaning enforcing it. So um, it didn't happen in 1954 that it wasn't really um, enforced here in Louisiana until 1960. And I had already attended school for kindergarten and it was an all black school, which was the norm. Uh, the all black school was much further away from my home. It was not my neighborhood school. My neighborhood school was actually this white school. So I was accustomed to school. I'd gone to kindergarten and I had also started first grade. I went for September and October and then that law was not enforced until November the 14th. So I actually left the all-black school to attend this new school. And quite frankly, that's all I knew about the school. My mom said, you're going to go to a new school today, Ruby, and you better behave. And that was my preparation for what was to come. Um, and you're right. 
there were lots of families that uh, in my community that agreed that they wanted their children to have the opportunity for better education and that sending them to one of these integrated schools would provide that. So there were nearly 150 families, give or take a few, that signed their kids up and those kids had to be tested. What my parents and those other parents later found out is that that test was really set up to eliminate kids. So out of that 150 or so kids, only six of them passed. They were all girls. There were only two schools that were going to be chosen to be integrated. They were in different communities. And those six kids were divided up. Three were assigned to one school and three to the other. A couple of days before it was time to actually go, two of those parents decided that they were not going to send their kids. Evidently, they had heard of the repercussions, how dangerous it could be. And so they decided not to, take their, not to send their kids. And those two kids were coincidentally assigned to go to school with me. My parents decided to go ahead with it and leave me in. And that is what separated me from the other three girls. I ended up the lone child going to William Franz Elementary alone. And that um, is what the depiction of the Norman Rockwell painting, where that came from. Right. But, but you took a test and when you passed the test, you didn't think you were actually going to elementary school. When I passed the test, just simply because uh, there were so many people coming over to my parents' home and congratulating them, like probably most African-Americans would do because, you know, it was a milestone for them. And so they kept coming over and congratulating my parents. And, you know, I would overhear them talk about how smart she was. And they were so proud of me and, you know, that no, none of these other kids could pass this test. So in my six-year-old mind, that meant that I was so smart that I was going to leave the school that I was in. And now I was on my way headed to college. And that, you know, all of the commotion that was around the community and my family and neighborhood was because they had never seen this little six-year-old child go from kindergarten to college. And, you know, yeah, I always point out that, you know, if we don't sit our kids down and expose them to all of this, then they will use their imagination, which is definitely what I did. Yeah. And in hindsight, I think that was a good thing because what really protected me was the innocence of a child. Right. Yeah. As you are walking to the school, uh, the mob that's there, your six-year-old mind is going, this is Mardi Gras. Yeah. And it's because I, you know, living in, in, in New Orleans and being raised uh, in New Orleans, that was something that we look forward to every year. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, Mardi Gras is only what you see on Bourbon Street, but it's really not 
mm-hmm. at all. You know, Bourbon Street is just that one street. And, you know, you see all this adult, you know. Um, shenanigans. Shenanigans <laughs> going on. But it's, it's really much, much more than that. It is a, a fun family event that we look forward to, you know, my parents would take us out, they'd prepare barbecue and hot dogs, and we'd go out and find a spot, you know, so we could watch the parade. So kids are just so excited about that every year. And um, so was I. But when I turned the corner that day, uh, the crowd outside of the school, they were screaming and shouting and waving their hands and throwing things. And that's what happens at Mighty Gras. Yeah. You know, there were policemen everywhere. There were policemen on horseback. They were on motorcycles. Um, and that also happens during Mighty Gras. And so that moment when we turned the corner and I saw that, I thought, oh, I'm on, I'm on my way to college, but it's Mighty Gras today. One question I've always wanted to ask, uh, as I see this little girl walking into school, after the first day, did you want to go back? No. No, I, um, I never really felt like I wanted to go back to my old school. And uh, once I was escorted into the building, they took me straight to the principal's office that very first day when I got out of the car with the marshals. And my mom and I went into the principal's office and took a seat and the federal marshals, they stayed right outside the door. Uh, the very next thing that happened is that, you know, all of those people that were standing out in the crowd screaming and yelling, they started to rush into the building. And they would pass by the office where I was seated with my mother, but then they kept pointing at me and screaming and shouting. And they would pass me, and that was just happening all day long. But when they would come back, by that office window, there were kids with them. And so I sat there all day watching that, not knowing what was happening and and still, you know, thinking that it's college and maybe college is so busy and, you know, this is the way college operates. And, you know, because it seemed really, really different from uh, the all black school that I'd come from. And finally, you know, when the bell rang, it was time for us to go home. And, you know, at that point, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, wow, college is easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nothing happened that day. But in my mind, nothing happened. What really was happening was that those parents brought their kids to school that day and they waited outside. Everybody knew that the school system was going to be integrated that day, November the 14th. But they kept those two schools secret. So no one knew which schools. So every parent showed up with their child that day, but they didn't leave. And so they were standing in front of their child's school in different schools. And then when I showed up, they knew it was their school. So what was happening right before my eyes was that they rushed in behind me. They went into every classroom and they started pulling kids out. And they would pass the window where I was and they were pointing and screaming. And uh, by the time the bell rang, 
that school had emptied out all 500 kids. They were gone. Mm. And they never came back. So by the time I got back for uh, the second day, the crowds had almost doubled in size. At that point, it was all over the news, all across the country. Everybody watched it. Everybody knew which schools. And so the mob grew larger and larger. And by the time I got there on the second day, uh, my mom said that was the day that she realized that the federal marshals were nervous and that they had guns. And so that, you know, at that moment, they rushed me inside. And when I got inside the second day, it too was very different because it was so quiet. I remember hearing all of our footsteps as we walked up those stairs. And um, when I got to the top of the stairs, someone said, your class is down the hall. And so those federal marshals, they turned me around and walked me down the hall to this classroom. When I got there, the door opened and this woman stepped out. And I remember looking at her and thinking she's white. You know, she, I'd not seen a white teacher before. Everybody at my old school looked exactly like me. And not to mention, she looked exactly like all those people outside screaming and shouting. So I really didn't know what to expect from her. But I remember looking into the classroom and seeing nothing but empty desk. And uh, she said, come in and take a seat. And I did, and she began to teach me. And very soon I realized that she looked exactly like the people outside, but she wasn't like them. You know, she, um, she was very nice to me. She did everything she could think of to keep my mind off of all of the screaming and the yelling and the swearing outside. And, uh, you know, she made school fun. I loved school. Uh, I knew that if I just got out of the car and into the building in my classroom, that I was going to have a good day. She was going to do something to make school fun. We made things. We did art and music and you know, I was a child that loved to learn, and she was going to teach me something new every day. So um, she, the lesson she taught me without even knowing it was that she looked like them, but she wasn't like them. She showed me her heart. And the lesson I learned in that classroom back in 1960 was that you cannot look at a person and judge them. That you have to allow yourself an opportunity to get to know them. And that stuck with me. And it shaped me into who I am today. She, um, I often say that she taught me the lesson that Dr. King tried to teach all of us. You know, you have to judge a person by the content of their character not the color of their skin. And that is the real lesson that I believe the Lord sent me into 
that school, that classroom to learn and to take it away and to spread it across this country to every child that I've come in contact with for the last 25 years. Yeah. One of the things that's really fascinating to me is when you talk about those, those angry parents, the, the contrast between your innocence and those parents, those white parents is anger. And they're going in and pulling their kids out. What lesson they are teaching their children just by those actions that these, these kids are, you know, innocent as well. That, that, right. that, that, that they are taught rate to be racist. They're taught racism. They're not born with racism. No, none of our babies come into the, to the world knowing anything about disliking the baby lying next to them. They don't know anything about the color of one's skin. The amazing gift that each human being is given when they enter into this world is a clean heart and a fresh start. So I believe that what we see today playing out before us is a direct result from us as adults passing racism on to our children. And I believed wholeheartedly that if I shared my story with kids and tried to help them to understand that racism doesn't have a place in their hearts and in their minds, that if they can be taught to be racist, they can be taught not to be. And I believe that if we are ever going to get past our racial differences, it's not going to come from us as adults. It's going to come from our children. In, in, in this context, particularly at that time, uh, clearly it was the, the white population that was teaching their kids to be racist, to hate. You weren't seeing that necessarily in the, in the black community to hate white people. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I can't, I can't swear to that because I believe that in a sense, my grandparents were racist, you know, and you have to think, you have to think of the time that they grew up in and think about the things that they must have seen, the things that they experienced. And, you know, I remember my, my grandmother lived and she was 95 years old. And, you know, so because of the treatment that they received and uh, the life that they had to live, uh, my grandmother they were sharecroppers, both on both sides. My gra- I say grandmother, my grandmother on my mother's side. They um, raised crops. Um, she had a huge garden, green thumb, everything lived. That's the way they earned a living, fed all of us. My grandfather that was married to her uh, milked worked on a dairy farm 
And that was getting up at three in the morning and working for just to be able to pay rent and have food, not necessarily get physically paid for it. And would go back in the evenings to work that dairy farm again. And then during the day, he would be in the fields plowing and planting. That was their life. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, they had really ill feelings about that. Right. My grandparents on my father's side, they raised cotton. And, you know, we all know at some point in time, you know, they realized that raising cotton was killing them. And my grandfather died when he was in his 40s. And, you know, they worked every day, every day around the clock. You know, once my mother married my father, my mother, you know, says all the time that the day I was born, she picked 90 pounds of cotton and carried it on her back that day. So... Yes, they had ill feelings about that. And not to mention the things that they had lived through and what they had seen from their own parents. Right. So, but did they pass that down to us? Not necessarily. You know, we, we were all sat down and you had to hear, you know, especially us coming from uh, New Orleans, you know, we had to be told how to act, how to speak, always say, yes, ma'am, no, sir. Never look them in the face, you know, no matter what age they were, you know, if they were even younger than us, the kids, you would say, yes, sir, no, sir, or yes, ma'am. So, you know, you, I tell people all the time, you know, all of us can be racist. Um, it is something that's learned. None of us are born that way, but it is something that's learned. And in some cases, taught, passed down. And, and LaVon, growing up in Mississippi as well, I mean, LaVon, you, you say in The Uncomfortable Truth that, you know, one of your opening statements is, no, I never liked white people. Right. And, you know, why would I? Right. Because... Well, we were taught. We, I guess you learn some of it by just observing and you learn others by what your parents told you. Right. So I had no reason. I could not see a good reason to trust them because you never knew what was going to happen. So once you relaxed around white people, uh, you were prone to say things, you were prone to do things. And I quite frankly think that's where black people learn to keep things to themselves because you couldn't talk to a white person as an equal. No. So if you start the conversation, uh, you know, two steps behind, you never caught up. So there was no reason to trust them. There was no reason to, to, uh, to relax around them. For instance, you, you know, a lot of people, I know they talked about Emmett a lot, and and uh, but a lot of people got killed in Jackson anyway, uh, just because they were black. Yes. So 
while you were out there picking the cotton or 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 the crop duster was flying overhead or whatever, they didn't care about your life. No. Uh, so you had no reason to care about them. You tried. I mean, there were a lot of people that tried, uh, but there was no reason to. I, to this day, cannot understand. I know all the history behind it. I understand why people did it. But I, to this day, cannot understand why Black people went to the Army, for instance. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, my father uh, was drafted and fought in the Korean War. But he, he said, even on the battlefield, you still were just a colored soldier. If you lived, you could be in the same foxhole with a person that was white. And at that moment, when you were in that foxhole, you had each other's back. But if you lived and uh, were able to go back, you couldn't go back to the same barracks. Right. And, you, and you couldn't eat in the same mess hall. Right. He, was, he said he still was just a color soldier, which was one of the reasons why my father never really wanted me to go to this integrated school. You know, right. because he thought that if him going to war if that didn't change things for him, then sending me to this white school wasn't going to change anything. Yeah, I know the, the uh, I, I don't know if you, the danger is sort of if you, nowadays, like if you pull into a corner uh, and say, I want nothing but black people around me, you're hurting yourself. Uh, Absolutely. You're hurting everybody. Yes. Uh, and that is that is the one thing that, you know, when... I spoke about traveling across the country and speaking to kids. The mere fact that they come into the world with that clean heart and that fresh start, if you get them early enough when they're really innocent and explain to them what I saw, what I went through and how I felt, then they relate to that. That's the child speaking to a child. Mm. But, um, you know, you're absolutely right that the truth of the matter is, is that the world has changed so much that we do our kids a disservice if you teach them to only trust people that look like them. And then you open your door and you send them out into the world as it is today. When you and I both know, no, you know, you, you cannot look at a person and think that because they look like you, that that's the one you need to trust. Absolutely. And I believe wholeheartedly that it is because our biggest enemy today, our enemy or, or, or issue that we are faced with today is good and evil. And good and evil comes in all shades and colors. And so, yes, you would do your children a disservice if you taught them that they need to only trust people that look like them. And racism sets them up to believe that. Correct. Yep. And that is why racism is far more dangerous today than it was back when everybody was wearing sheets. Thank you for joining us for episode one of our conversation with Ruby Bridges. To listen to the entire episode uncut, Please join us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland.
Please join us for part two of our conversation with Ruby Bridges. And don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.